coming up in this episode of Finding Common Ground. The secret to being a good-looking, slim, and trim black man is that you just have to stay out of the doghouse, Bill. Um, I came home um, really wanting to reconnect to current Chapel Hill, not Chapel Hill in the 70s. Finding Common Ground and now all the uncovered stories. So bridging the gap between our black and white history, what has been shared and then what has been not shared. If, if you were to get cut, you'd see Chapel Hill Blue come out of you. There are two sides to every coin. How do we deal with racial issues when they affect relationships? Finding common ground on all those issues that we come against. There's black and there's white. And I think as Christians, we have to learn how to get together because we're not in heaven. I've met more interesting people just by God just bringing them in. Republicans and Democrats. But a lot of times when it comes to race and it comes to culture and it comes to perception, even as Christians, we don't always understand. We look at it through our lenses. There's Bill. I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland called Parma. Uh, Any the, black people in Parma? There was not one. Not one black person, not Bill? Not one. Come not on, Bill, one. you got to have one, a nope. token black person, a token And there's Odell. I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, public housing, single mom, divorced single mom with four kids, and I came up through segregation and all that kind of stuff. If a black person drove through the town, the police would stop and escort them out. Bill and Odell are finding common ground. A part of what we have to do is listen to each other, find the common ground, and question, not questioning you like you're on a witness stand, but questioning you for a better understanding. Dear Heavenly Father, just uh, thank you for our guests today. Uh, thank you for Danita and Missy and Sandra and their story about... Uh, their relationship and bridging the gap and sitting on the porch and getting to know each other. Lord, uh, thank you for the holiday season. Let us remember the reason for the season. Uh, give us safe travels as we travel about uh, with our families and friends. And uh, thank you for uh, coming and uh, being our savior. Amen. Father God, we just say thank you for your grace and mercy. At this time of the year, when we celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, God, we think about the circle, the whole idea of Christmas as a child when you wake up and you're excited, and then later on in life, you just keep going. And now at the ripe old age of 62, as I look at Christmas through my grandchild's eyes, God, I often think back about all the people who are no longer here sitting at the table. My great, great, great grandmother, my great grandmother, my grandmother, my grandfather and others. And God, just thank you for the continuum for us to understand that we're not gonna be here forever, but we thank you that while we're here, that we understand and we're in the present right now. And like my grandmother would say who you know, God, the audience knows too that I'm just descendants of slaves. She says, you know what I done, Yafa? I ain't got to tell you. So I interpret it to the new audience listening to say, God, you know why I'm down here on my knees. I do not have to tell you. So God, we thank you for our heritage. We thank you for those who went on before us, God. God, we thank you for their wisdom and their understanding 
in their commitment and sacrifice to allow me and to allow my children and to allow my grandchildren to have a better future. So God, we thank you and we praise you as we celebrate this time of year. In Jesus' precious name, we pray and believe. Amen. 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 Hey, Odell, that was a pretty good prayer. Yeah. Oh, a bill for a Baptist preacher, for a jackleg Baptist preacher. I think that's okay, huh? That was a short one then for a Baptist preacher. <laughs> they, well, I didn't pass a plate, though. You know, after you say a prayer, we're going to pass the basket. So, oh, Bill, yeah. how are you doing? Oh, yeah. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm excited about our guest today. Uh, we asked him, you know, the pre-meeting uh, rundown. We asked him, are there any things that we shouldn't talk about? And guess what? The two things they don't want us to talk about. I have no, I have no idea, Bill. I don't know what you're talking about. What rundown? <laughs> what are you talking about, Bill? Bill, I can't even hear you. My, yeah. my, my microphone, my earplugs. Are not <laughs> they, they said two things to stay away from: their age and their weight. So uh, we're gonna, we're gonna stay away from them. But speaking of weight, how much have you lost? Well, that was a good, that was a, that, you know, Bill, you made me nervous there for a while, but that was a good <laughs> comeback. There you go. So how much did Odell lose? Odell has lost currently about 60 pounds. I started in April of last year, as everyone knows, uh, my goal was to lose a hundred pounds within a year. Uh, I got down to about 60 and I wanted to be at 70 by, you no. Know, my goal was to lose 100 pounds within a year. So by April 2023, but I'm getting to 60 and my wife's starting to complain. She says that um, I'm losing too much, that um, maybe another 10 pounds and that should be it. Then she said, after that, I need to start working on my midsection bill. She said, I need to start working on my gut bill. What is that to say to a man talking about the weight? Because, you know, men, Bill, we have fragile male egos. So when the women who we love say, hey, man, you need to start working on, I guess it's called a muffin top or whatever that means. <laughs> where I'm at, Bill, right now. So I think I've lost 60, going to lose 70. But more importantly than losing weight, I have rediscovered the whole sense of being healthy. And that that's that's more important than losing weight, because I think that one of the things that I was dealing with, unbeknownst to me or as men, we don't accept reality sometimes, not all men, but I can only talk about me, the good looking, slim and trim now black man. Uh, <laughs> the fact that the mental and emotional weight that that extra weight was causing or affecting me. So that's just one of the things that I've learned. And I think that as uh, as I continue to mature in this cycle called life, I just continue to learn and discover to make me a better Odell, make me a better father, better husband, better sister, brother. So I'm just evolving, Bill. I guess like we say in the Baptist church, God is not through with me yet. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. Well, I'm proud of you, man, for losing all that weight. That's That wasn't an easy thing. And you're right. It it will help your health in the long run. I, I suspect that Bev, your wife, doesn't want you to lose too much because she wants you still huggable. And I think if you get too much, you're not as huggable. Well, if I say too much about my wife on the broadcast, I won't be too huggable <laughs> anyway. So I don't want to be in the doghouse going into the holidays, Bill. Yeah. Because, you know, the secret to being a good looking, slim and trim black man is that you just have to stay out of the doghouse, Bill. You know, it's a swag, but it ain't no swag going into the doghouse. So we yeah. don't want to spend the holidays in the doghouse, Bill. That doesn't work for me. White guys like you, 
that might work for you. But the brother man can't be in the doghouse going into the holidays, Bill. I want a little eggnog and a little bit of fruitcake. So we're going to play our cards right. <laughs> good man. Good man. Hey, you know, I got my knee operated on a week ago Wednesday. And um, I'm gimping along here. I had a meniscus tear and a meniscus cyst he took out. And I had one done about 25 years ago, but I don't remember it being this tough. This is, uh, of course, I haven't been sitting around. That's probably part of the problem. I haven't been babying it. Well, Bill, you know what they usually say about men. <clears throat> Excuse me. They say we can't stand pain. And all we do is uh, want our wives or our significant others to come and you know, let us moan and groan about our pain. <laughs> but the good thing about it, Bill, our guest today, I am so excited about our guest because without uh, letting too much of the cat out of the bag, it mimics a lot about what we do, Bill, how we have our friendship when you have people of different races and different backgrounds and different perspectives all coming together. And, you know, like they said, um, sitting on the porch or, you know, bridging the gap. So I just can't wait to hear what the guest today is going to say and all the tough conversations, because, you know, it's hard to hate up close, Bill. We say that a lot. And a lot of times biases, prejudice, stereotypes, all those things play such a role. And when you step out of that and say, hey, my best friend is a um, white guy, then my black friends look at me like, what? Or you said, I'm going hunting with a bunch of white guys in the woods. They said, what? Black in the woods with a bunch of white guys with guns. You know, all the things that people say, and rightfully so, to a certain degree. Let's not be naive. But at the same time, I admire those who reach across all of our differences to find our commonalities. And that's the fact that we're all human. Bill, introduce our guest to us, please. Yeah, I'll be happy. Uh, today we have uh, Danita Mason. Hogan's and Sandra Connor Conway and Missy. Uh, Missy, your last name isn't Julian, is it? It's it's Julian hyphen Fox. That's what I thought. Yeah, Julian. I was going to say Julian Fox, but I, I mean, I wasn't sure if the Julian was in there, but now I know. Well, anyhow, welcome to the show, the three of you. And I'd like you to each introduce yourself a little bit, and then we'll get into how you met. You know, we start with uh, Danita. Well, thank you so much for having us today. I'm a big fan of the show, and um, I just appreciate the opportunity to sit with my porch sisters and talk about how we connect. I am Danita. I'm seven generations from Chapel Hill. I'm, my people on my father's sides are Masons and nuns. They are the uh, people who gifted land for the development of the university and also the town of Chapel Hill. So we go way back in Chapel Hill, and um, I am an educator. I'm a public historian. I'm also um, an oral historian and hopefully a good mother and wife and friend and a community worker. Well, I think you can add one more to that. A great, well, pod well, a great podcaster. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah, and, a, and a fan of the Dylan O'Dell show, for sure. Thank you. Uh, Sandra? Um, I am Sandra Wilcox-Conway, and um, I'm a deeply rooted North Carolinian. I have family all across the state and lots of cousins. Um, but I did grow up in Chapel Hill, and it was one of the greatest gifts of my life. Um, and then I moved to Charlotte um, when I got married and lived there for 30 years. And 
raised three children, two boys and a girl, just adore them and adore my family. Um, I laugh at my age. Somebody gave me this language that you have a slash career. I've been a consultant, a philanthropist, and an activist. Sometimes I say I'm a CPA. So I've been all those things. But <laughs> primarily, um, I work in um, those sectors in support of public education and women's leadership. And then um, joyfully, I moved back to Chapel Hill in 2016. And we'll talk a little bit about this later. But um, I came home um, really wanting to reconnect to current Chapel Hill, not Chapel Hill in the 70s, and was on the lookout for you know wonderful people to connect to. And so we'll talk more about that today, but um, was happy to come back in 2016 to Chapel Hill. Very good. And Missy? Yes. <laughs> um, like a lot of women and probably like you guys too, um, the career list is long and and varied everything from reading teacher, uh, running our family, small business, uh, writing children's books, um, surviving cancer, downtown community activist. Um, and my last paying gig was as director of the University of North Carolina's Visitor Center. Oh, wow. I um, but the the last five years since I left the university, um, truly my passion has become to understand and share that hidden history that I was learning, the stories that weren't being told about campus or about my town. Um, I am, yes, Chapel Hill, born and bred. Um, and my family has always supported me and, and I feel I've been uh, living a very privileged and secure um, life. Um, it's certainly a blessing. Um, my dad came here, he described himself as Yankee and Jewish, uh, fell in love with my mom who Southern and Baptist. And so in 1947, they had to find their common ground um, and really a lifetime of finding their common ground. Um, and it, it really hit me today thinking, oh, wow, I get to talk with Bill and Adele and my porch sisters. Um, but for me, the quest has been how did they do that in this town? What is it about this town? And so I've looked to the history of um, finding common ground and now all the uncovered stories. So bridging the gap between our black and white history, what has been shared and then what has been not shared is really my passion now. Wow. That's a great overview. It seems like there's uh, Chapel Hill is, uh, if, if you were to get cut, you'd see Chapel Hill blue come out of you, it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> all of you. All of all us. You, all of yeah, all of you. Yeah. Odell? Well, you know, it's interesting. How can you talk about Chapel Hill without talking about the Tar Heels? And how can you talk about the Tar Heels without talking about Dean Smith? 
uh, all those things from the Michael Jordans to everyone else. But it was so interesting that our guests talked about the hidden history and um, many talk about seven generations. So if you don't mind, Mr. Nita, can I ask about the seven generations and how your family gifted? Because usually African-American families are not looked at as one who has wealth or land or using the agrarian South, we understand that a lot of the wealth was associated with land. So can you talk a little bit about your family and how did your family uh, acquire uh, sure. resources? Well, let me, let me be clear. I may have misspoken. My family did not gift uh, the university <laughs> and the town. The people who owned my ancestors gifted the university and town, just trying to go back um, to that particular history. I am a Mason from Chapel Hill, and we talk about parallel history a lot. And one of the things, because of our proximity to people who were in power, we were able to become business people in Chapel Hill, did a lot of feeding for folks in Chapel Hill, had a grocery store, a hotel, a lot of land um, to build upon. So we were altruistic in that way, um, specifically to the Black community, but we definitely didn't have enough money or land to give <laughs> to UNC. But um, we go back for those generations. And I heard you talk about earlier, um, lovingly, about your great-great-grandmother um, being missing from the table. And, you know, my great, great, my great grandparents were people that I knew. So it's a, a beautiful thing to be able to reach back and touch that history and touch the history and the part that connects with the town that you love so much in a different way, in a parallel way to folks who had a lot of money and had a lot of power in the town. So it was, um, we definitely are a service related family and come from that history, but um, we were proximate to that power. Got it, got it. And that makes all the sense in the world. What, what my family did in the town of Abbeville, South Carolina, where they pride themselves still to today of being the birthplace in the deathbed of the Confederacy, um, a lot of times people would have gotten hung and did get hung. And a lot of the black folks left town going up north. And it's interesting that my family decided to stay. And my family worked for very powerful, influential white families. And it was a little bit of an association with or pride, for lack of a better term, that if you work for this family or that family. Now, that could go a lot of different ways. And that's not the show today. But it's interesting that a lot of us have this shared heritage and the uniqueness of it that I'll speak to all the guests is that beautiful relationship that the narrative don't really get told about a lot of how the white families and the black families came together, if not by blood, but by common dependency. And whether that white baby was sucking from a black nipple, being called a wet nurse, or whether that family was working together to survive doing the stressful, mental, emotional aspects that we all need. And some of our best friends were the other race. And society would say, no, you don't act that way in public, but a lot goes on that society don't determine who one loves, who one uh, confides in, 
who one helps out each other. So I think that your story is very unique, but at the same time, to your point, it was right there in parallel of because seven generations, I was thinking back to my grandfather's grandmother. I remember as a child, I would go to Abbeville and my grandfather's grandmother. So I remember her, that's one generation. I remember my grandfather's mother, that's two generations. I remember my grandfather, that's three generations. My mother is still living, that's four. I'm five, my son is six, and my grandson and granddaughters are seven. So mm -hmm. if things work well, I would live to be able to touch seven, possibly now, possibly eight generations. And what do you do when you went from being the child sitting on the porch to being the person now who can touch all these generations? And what do you do like the Sankofa bird? What do you do with that history? What do you do with that knowledge, the egg that one carries in one's mouth, where you look backwards, because that's what the bird's necks turn toward, but your feet are going forward. And the beautiful relationship that you can have between white and black, if one choose to do the work necessary to make those relationships possible. Yeah, I mean, um, you said so much and all of that is true. I know that um, it was very, it was an anomaly for people during my father's time to go to college. And that was made possible by um, the white family that his father worked for and some of the fraternities that helped to send them to school. And so there are so many um, connection points and there's so many um, ironies. You know, I have one ancestor who, um, who was Sally Mason. She's uh, buried um, near Finley Golf Course on mm -hmm. the outside of the official graveyard of the white owners who shared her. She was such a good uh, servant to the folks who were on the plantation that she was shared by a number of families. And I went to visit her grave and thought about the ironies of enslavement and these relationships. These folks bought her a tombstone which wow. is um, unheard of. Arrogant. Yeah, that was unusual for white people. A lot yeah. of white people um, during that time, but they bought her a tombstone and inscribed on that tombstone was, um, here's Sally Mason, our black mammy. And so for during that time period, they thought that they thought so much of her that they decided to buy her a tombstone and they wanted her to be buried with the family, which was very commonplace during that time. The challenge is right outside of her tombstone were her children. So in death, a lot of the tradition was for the favorite people who were enslaved to be buried with the family, very literally so that they could serve them in heaven. And so once we start understanding that historical context, we're able to put together what was um, true feelings, I believe, true feelings of affection, and um, true feelings of family in terms of like what was normative during that time, and then juxtapose them about what we know today, what our understanding is of today. And so I do think um, when we talk about being generationally from Chapel Hill or any place, we think about the evolution of our relationships. We think about the evolution of our social construct and the way that we think about being together. But at each point, um, as long as you're in a household, you are small uh, together, your kids, 
friends in high schools, a lot of times those relationships are real. It's yeah. just the power dynamic. It's something that needs to be looked at. But those relationships were real. And I could trace, I could tell you about relationships between black and white folks since um, as long as I can go back, you know, with, with my family. So it's, it's, it's really complex. But um, on another level, it really is about um, care and concern for each other and spending time and the proximity of power. Is this how the, the porch group got together? Um, I'll address that. Okay. <laughs> um, so there's a little bit of a, um, a, a prequel to the, to the story. Um, and this is Missy speaking, by the way. Yes. <laughs> um, I was actually working on a new tour that I wanted to address and bring together these missing stories and tell them, um, you know, as a white woman, a privileged white woman, there are just so many things I didn't know. And uh, in an effort to share those, I had met Danita and heard her incredible uh, idea for bridging the gap. Um, it was at a big, bold ideas event. Mm. And when I met her, it was immediately, I want to know her more. I want to know what she's working on more. So through uh, mutual friends, we arranged a breakfast and over breakfast, we just started sharing about each other. Um, and literally <laughs> over a bite of bagel, we were laughing and Danita looked at me and she said, oh my gosh, Missy, we've both grown up in Chapel Hill. We both have these stories. We have lived parallel lives. And I said, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, um, you're so right. And you just named my new tour, Parallel Lives. Wow. So, after that breakfast, um, yeah, I wanted even more, Danita. And I said, you've got to come over. Just come to my house. Let's just sit on the porch and talk. And, um, and we made an arrangement to do that. And at that, at that first meeting, Danita said, oh, I brought a new friend of mine. She just moved back to Chapel Hill. She is between us. We actually span decades. Um, and I am the oldest. Um, and Nobody has to be. Right? Somebody has to be. And I treasure that position. Um, but that's how Sandra also joined us at the porch. So that one meeting, um, which ended up, I think, into the night, <laughs> um, like, we have to do this again. And oh, at that one, we have to do this again. So we are now three years in to a weekly session on the porch um, between the three of us. And um, every once in a while, we invite guests in. Um, and it is just, it's a, it's a magical um, 
it's a magical place to be for all that we learn and take away from it. Um, but Sandra, you, you give your little, <laughs> tell them about us. You laid it out so beautifully, Missy. I, um, I've met Danita in a similar vein. We were working on a project around the humanities and philanthropy and um, had heard about her big, bold idea and, and just was captivated by her and her work. And we, we went and had um, coffee together and she told me about Missy. And when I moved back to Chapel Hill, um, you know, I keep thinking about bridging the gap. And as a white person, we have so many gaps in terms of our understanding of history. And so I knew that from a lot of wise people in Charlotte, Dot Counts, and a lot of historians, but um, I knew I was coming back to my hometown with a lot of gaps because y'all know this Chapel Hill, um, you can look at it through rose colored glasses easily just because mm -hmm. there's a lot of good. And so just, it, it was such a blessing to cross paths with Danita. And so I was open to, um, you know, looking at my hometown with a new lens, I just had no idea that I would cross paths with, you know, the best historian in town. <laughs> and so um, that was just such a blessing. And so she invited me to the porch with Missy. Um, I want to say real quick to you, you guys have a porch and we're, we're lucky <laughs> to be with you guys today. You might not know it, but y'all have a beautiful porch, but our porch um, has a couple of components um, that we, we talk a lot about, we love alliteration. <laughs> and so we, we strategize every time around our shared passions. Um, we are very silly and Missy gives us snacks every time. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds pretty good. Odell, you got to start bringing snacks. Well, you're on a diet now. You can't do that. <laughs> so, uh, she got healthy snacks. Odell. Okay. She there you go. <laughs> um, but that's how I ended up on the porch and just such a, a blessing to cross paths with these women. Man, I tell you what, I can feel the love between the three of you and the respect and admiration. And I mean, just go on with the adjectives. I, I just, man, it's pretty powerful, Odell. Yes. Uh, Sandra, Sandra, question for you. What did you bring from to the porch? And what did you take away from the porch over these last three years? Odell. Um first one shorter and what I brought, I, um, we all care about education and justice. And so I really um, work to connect my work in philanthropy um, and civic engagement to the work that Missy and Danita are doing. So that's kind of what I bring to the porch is some of the statewide work that supports all the great things they're doing in Chapel Hill. Um, Odell, I, I can hardly um, tell you what I've gotten from it. Um, because three years in, um, it's not only the work, but the relationships. Um, it's been a tough three years. You know, we've all had losses and challenges. And so um, just the support that I have gotten from these women, um, I can hardly describe. So mm -hmm. I hope that answers. You did. You did. And, you know, a lot of times when you start talking about the town historian and what I've what I've found out um, over the years, and I didn't, I just didn't understand this. The narrative, who controls the narrative? Who controls what's in the history books? And that's so important because even if the facts are all there, it's how the narrative is told 
So share a little bit with the audience about your activist work. Yeah. Um, so um, I have done a lot of work around resegregation of schools and student assignment because I realized as a philanthropist, um, my friend Alfred Mays says this a lot with Burroughs Welcome is if you keep building programs on the um, chronic, um, you know, on racial inequities and the sand and the sands of chronic underfunding, none of that matters, right? So if you don't understand those two things, it's really malpractice in my work, right? Mm. So um, I've done activism in, in a lot of different arenas around student assignment, the Leandro case. I'm working primarily with the Dudley Flood Center right now, um, and they do amazing work. Um, but all of that work is informed by what I learned from Danita. And Danita's work with Bridging the Gap, um, and if you're doing this work, you have to understand where you came from, right? We all came from Chapel Hill. And so every week that work is informed by what I learned from Danita. And I teased Missy, I told her this, I said, I'm going to tell Bill and Odell, we're okay, but Danita's a genius. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, we agree. <laughs> we agree on that. <laughs> so, um, and so the depth of her understanding and the brilliance of her ability to share a narrative um, just informs what I do every every day, every day. You know, you, you make me, uh, it's, it's humbling to hear all this. It's just so great. Um, you know, you had to deal with, like you mentioned, a lot of um, issues in your life over the last three years. And I can't imagine how you could keep the porch going in a pandemic when you're not supposed to meet. How did you guys do that? We kept the fans going. It was open. Um, some days there were masks. Um, we spaced ourselves out. Um, and yeah, it was, it was a challenge, but it was a testament to how much we came to actually need each other and that support and the the gift of that love and insight and um, and we can't diminish the strategy piece because we have um, an agenda. We don't follow it as, as um, straight as we, uh, we laugh about that, but it really is a sharing of work, a body of work and how we can um, magnify it, make it better, make it more, um, make sure it's truthful and accurate and, um, and reaching who we want. So yeah, they, they, these women were my saving grace for those last three years, especially with the pandemic. Yes. We all needed to be in touch with each other. I don't think uh, we as humans are designed to be alone. Um, I think well, we need Bill, each other. Bill, do you think any uh, fermented grapes made their way to the t to the porch? <laughs> well, I was thinking about that, and I'm thinking, what is it, red wine or white wine or both? Uh, but uh, there should be if there isn't, uh, and uh, maybe we can uh, find a way to help that. There you go. <laughs> I'm going. So, so Missy, question for you. Yes, sir. When you started this, 
How did you tell your old friends about your new friend? How did you tell your old acquaintances about your new acquaintance? Because a lot of times when you, me, when I stepped out and started hanging out with Bill and started traveling to Paris and London and all these places <laughs> with Bill and people like, wait a minute, Odell, what's going on? Did you get any of those? Wait a minute, Missy. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're not in the country club. You know, come on now. You're not in Kansas anymore. How did you handle that? Um, wow. You guys do have your own porch. <laughs> um, Yes, uh, we, the three of us, I mean, I, I've come to my um, court sisters and, and said just that, you know, and I think that I have felt such a difference because I know so much more. Um, so my world has expanded so much and the excitement and the joy of learning, I think, is how I have gone to my friends, uh, my old friends. Sometimes it hasn't been as well received as I would have wanted it to be. Um, and yet, you know, another thing we talk about is, and this was a hard lesson for me, but my porch sisters would say, let's focus on the people that are listening, the people that want this information, that want to be with us. Let's don't spend so much energy on the people that want to fight us on it right now. Um, and that was a hard lesson for me because I like to bring everybody together. Um, but sometimes it really doesn't work. And I, I marvel, I said I was the oldest. Um, I, I'm the oldest and I'm the last to this kind of work. So it has been wonderful to have mentors for me, my young mentors, um, help me deal with many of those, those questions. Um, we all wish the world believed and did what we all believe is right. It's been proven to us to be right and better. Mm. You know, but everybody's not there yet. To have an effective porch, uh, you have to uh, be vulnerable. Yes. You have to be transparent. Uh, you have to be humble yeah. um, and uh, will, uh, coachable, I guess, is the word I'd use. It's just so much goes into it because I've learned so much from Odell yeah. uh, and things that I, I was not aware of and embarrassed, quite frankly, yeah. that I wasn't aware of it because it was right in front of me. I just never saw it. I didn't have the right lens. Uh, Danita, uh, tell us about seven generations. I mean, that's that's remarkable. Yeah, um, and and it's actually seven generations on both sides of my family. Um, and as as is normative with um, with the enslavement, a lot of times there were certain families who are connected uh, through generations with each other because of the work that they did. So my family were servants to some of the um, 
founders and, and, you know, I had an uncle who was President Friday's assistant is what, what we call them now. And um, so it was a very normal thing. You know, folks in my family knew Frank Porter Graham. And, and, and really, one of the ways that I trace history is thinking about all of the people that my family worked for and some of the stories that they shared with me to make sense of the political or the historical moment that we were in. So it is um, seven generations of stories and seven generations of realities that were different from each other. So it, none of it was separated from the university and none of it was separated from the town. So mm -hmm. um, just really deeply rooted and so proud to be from Chapel Hill a deep love for Chapel Hill and um, a deep awareness of the, the differences that exist in Chapel Hill. Yeah. Um, some of the work that we connect with, with Bridging the Gap really highlight how education was different for black descendants of enslaved folks from uh, white folks who had an opportunity to have education. You know, for us, for 77% of our existence because the schools when Chapel Hill was desegregated in 1966, which of course is 12 years after Brown v. Board. And a lot of uh, people like me or like my family who were from Chapel Hill were not privy to equal education. And it's shown up in so many ways. One is that Orange County, where we live, is uh, has the greatest wealth gap. Chapel Hill Carborough City Schools have the second largest achievement gap in the nation. And I think um, part of that bill is because people, it's actually goes back to what Odell said about the narrative of Chapel Hill. Um, Chapel Hill is known to be such a great, affluent, wealthy um, spot that is um, centered in education. But for those of us who are from Chapel Hill for seven generations, we and who were the labor force and the foundation and the building force, of the university, we've known a quite quite a different reality. And so oftentimes we get overlooked because of the big, um, the big reputation that UNC has when it comes to um, education. And if people even know that there is a local generational black population in Chapel Hill, I think the presumption is that everything is taken care of and we get swooped up. So this is how Chapel Hill can have it on one on one hand, the greatest, um, one of the greatest school systems in the country. When I was coming up, we were always um, high schools in the top 10 in the country. And at the same time, possess uh, folks who were being undereducated the whole time and cycles of this undereducation. But because of the narrative of the greatness of UNC and Chapel Hill, we kind of got lost in that, in that, um, in that little cloud. And that that's something that um, generationally we have to deal with, I think. And, you know, th th it is, it is uh, when you, when you identify it, like you just did, it becomes very apparent that, uh, that that exists. And you start thinking about and uh, listeners in your own community. Do you see the same thing happen in your own community? And if you do, maybe it's time to sit on the porch and talk. Uh, and have those co deep conversations of why is there inequity in in people of color versus people of non-color, and uh, and and then the next question would be 
what can you do about it to help fix it? Um, Danita, um, as you were talking about uh, slavery and uh, segregation and desegregation, you know, I know on Chapel Hill, they had a Confederate uh, monument. And I remember walking by it all the time and not thinking anything of it. Uh, I'm from the North. So, I, you know, I, I don't think the same way sometimes Southern people do about the Confederates. Um, but now looking at it, how did you feel walking by that? You, you know, it's so crazy, Bill. My mom worked on campus. She was one of the first uh, cohorts of black employees. She was employed at UNC as an admissions in the admissions office in 1969. So it was at a time, it was during a time that that UNC was going, undergoing a lot of change. And my grandmother worked on Franklin Street at the Intimate Bookstore. So the bus would drop me off and I would stop in and say hey to my grandmother and then I'd run um, to the admissions office on campus. And Silent Sam was between where grandmother worked and where my mom worked on campus. And the craziest thing was I always felt so safe <laughs> when I would go from the intimate bookstore to my mom because, you know, he had this big soldier and he had this gun and it just represented to me how um, safe we were in Chapel Hill. And then, of course, as we got older and saw the meaning, it was it was an incredible um, it was an incredible feeling to 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 understand what this symbology was of this Confederate soldier and what it meant. Um, there's a rock wall that separates the town from the, um, from the university. So I would go, my ancestors helped to build those walls and to see Silent Sam hovering over them, it just gave such a very different meaning. And then as a historian, to find out that Silent Sam was erected in well in the early 1900s, well after the enslavement, made me think about how I was valued as a black person in Chapel Hill, with the um, juxtaposition of the proud that I the pride that I felt um, knowing that some of these buildings that people enjoy are buildings that my ancestors erected and worked at, like for the whole time that we've been here. And then to see that symbol of um, hate and oppression that existed with Silent Sam is just, um, it's incredible. But to really think that I used to think, I used to feel so safe. You know, I used to feel so safe when I ran past this statue that had this gun, because that just meant that, you know, we would do anything that we could to protect this town. And uh, to find out what that meant was, was really a part of the journey that, you know, towards um, one of the things to um, really talk about how these symbols and this history has meant different things to different people. And just incredulous that it has taken this long to bring that statue down. So um, it does, it just really has a lot of meaning for some people. Um, Bill, like you might be up north, you know, you're from up north, maybe. Um, maybe some people thought it was silly. Maybe some people thought that it was not a good thing, but not as intensely um, offensive and hurtful as maybe I had experienced it, especially when it was juxtaposed um, throughout all of the other beautiful things that 
uh, the campus meant for me. It's just, it's, it's unbelievable really to think that it's taken so long for that to be um, torn down. This is a question. You're right. And thank you for sharing that. That was uh, well stated. Uh, this is a question for all three of you. Uh, you know, that, that gap that you talked about between the uh, have and have not, so to speak, education is one of the things that can bridge that gap. How do you bring education to people that have, have been disadvantaged from having a good education and trying to catch up with people their own age? Well, I'll, I'll take a quick stab at it. Okay. Um, what I, one thing that I know with studying um, history, in particular uh, history in Chapel Hill, is that we can no longer just be content to let each other hear each other's perspective or each other's stories. There has to be some type of reparative work. Um, there are generations of young people who have been um, the beneficiaries of a, a, a second class, maybe third class education. And we know that not only does this hinder opportunities for them, but think about Kismikia Corbett, who is from Orange County, North Carolina, who developed, um, who developed a treatment for COVID. How many people, how many academic Michael Jordans are we leaving um, on the field and not allowing, by not allowing them to get into the game? There's, a, there's so many things that we really need to address in terms of education. So bridging the gap, the objective to bridging the gap is to provide um, a, um, assistance with homework and education for the descendants of the enslaved folks who built the university. And then after they graduate, they will um, get a scholarship in order to go to UNC. And that's just like kind of the beginning of how we can address some of these inequities because I believe that the least among us, if we're able to uh, model and take care of the least among us, that will inspire everybody to have an equitable education. So I think we need to start there. And because we have been bereft of so many opportunities, it's really important that the beginning of the redress is to provide a program for the descendants of folks who have been left out of the playing field for so, so long. May, may I? Yes, Missy. Jump in here. Um, because one of the things I have learned from our, our porch conversations, um, because I'm an educator too, and this achievement gap in Chapel Hill has been a 50 year conversation. Um, which is just no longer acceptable. It, it, it shouldn't have been acceptable for this long. But I think that what I learned on the porch is that we have had a lot of fixers and I could count myself among those fixers as white people, oh, I have an answer. When what we really haven't done is go to our black community and say what you tell us what you need. And I think um, that conversation, those conversations that we have had on the porch about that, who's listening to who, who is asking the questions, where are the solutions 
emanating from. And they have to, um, that changed the way I view things quite a bit, being able to have um, another viewpoint about that. And um, I, so I think bridging the gap does that, your program. And that's why it, it's a magnet um, for so many of us. It's a model. Sandra? Um, that's why I think we're all drawn to Danita's big, bold idea. Um, I'll tell you, as you know, coming from this white progressive world, um, the way we impede progress is um, there's this framework called the progressive mystique where we pride ourselves on convening. We have kind of a patriarchal generosity towards the poor. And then we put up barriers to real change, right? And what Danita's building is breaking down those barriers that would lead to real change. Because one thing in Odell, your prayer was so beautiful. One thing we all, all three of us with our age and stage, we share this sense of urgency, right? Like the time is now to get this done. So um, Danita's vision for that is for me so important. And not only does she have the vision I love, she brings students along with her at every point. So intergenerational work is a part of everything she does. Um, so I just think it is, is time to be big and bold and do, um, what she's, um, proposing. Very good. Very good. Odell. Yeah. Danita, um, quick question for you. I've, I've done some work, nothing as to the magnitude that you're doing, but similar. One of the things that I discovered that was very, um, unexpectedly, I was busy getting the powers to be, white, black, um, Christian Jews, anybody and everybody to help with this thing on welfare reform. And that was interesting. That was a battle all by itself. Mm -hmm. But on the other side, a lot of the families that I was trying to help give a hand up, not a hand out, that was a battle also. So how do you bridge that those two different worlds, because I could very easily see in Chapel Hill over the last couple of years, maybe just maybe the term critical race theory may have came up on the porch and may not, but also on the other side of it too, when you deal with a lot, I grew up in public housing. Uh, so I have a sense of how the system works with poor black kids and how if you are any way shape or form aggressive, that the path to um, special ed class is part of the solution. And I remember having to fight that system, my family, my mother, and my mother had a stroke at 25. So I remember her having to walk three miles with a wooden cane in one hand and a metal brace on the other leg because she was misdiagnosed by the system, but we're not going there to keep the school system from putting her baby, she called me pumpkin at the time, into special ed. So those fights, and sometimes, not always, everyone may not have had the um, determination that my mother had to make sure that even though the school said, your son belongs in special ed, and there's nothing wrong with special ed, but 
she said, no, I'm going to fight the system. And a lot of people don't always fight the system. They just assume the system is right. So how do you bridge those two worlds? Because both have to be working to make this work. Because when you present opportunities, if people are not prepared and ready for opportunities, then when the door open, it doesn't matter. But it takes so much energy to get to open the door. So that's where you come in and your magnetic personality and everything around your big vision has the Sandras coming in and the Missy's coming in. And they're knowing that by them coming in saying, hey, it's been a mis miscarriage of justice here, that they're gonna be in some ways not invited to all the Christmas parties that they used to get to. So you're not as um, sociable, palatable Missy and Sandra yeah. as you used to be. So that's part, that's part of it that no one tells you that that's part of it. So, Danita, I asked you all those questions because remember now, I failed the third grade and the fourth grade because the schools in South Carolina in the late 60s, early 70s said, Odell, you're not intelligent. And if you think you're intelligent, we're going to prove to do to you that you're not intelligent. So when you start dealing with systemic things, that's the hard part. So how do you deal with all that? Well, whew, that's a that's a question. <laughs> that's for sure. Well, I can tell you that. Um, First of all, I do come from a family of organizers. My father was one of the Chapel Hill nine students who started the um, civil movement in Chapel Hill. And my mom, um, when I was a student, it was in 1972, I was the first class of a mixed race, um, a mixed race student population that was headed by two black women. So a lot of times we don't think about how my mom and other women like my mom were really pioneers of the PTA, of getting involved in those systemic things that had to break their heart every day when they talked about how the kids were not up to par and we were not, um, we were not intelligent enough to, to deal with um, a lot. When I was in fourth grade, I took, we used to have the California achievement test. I don't know if y'all remember those things, but it was um, geared to see how proficient you might be in school. And I used to love to read. So I remember getting a really high score. I think I was like in a 97th percentile or something on the California achievement test. And I remember the hurt and the pain and the conversation that went on in my household when they asked me to retake the test because there had to have been some type of error somewhere. Oh, man. Uh, uh, Danita, Danita, excuse me. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I apologize to you and all the guests and all the audience. That test with the number two black pencil where you filled in the, the, the little circles, is that the one you're talking about? That's the one. You know, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm in, the bit, in the middle of finishing up a book now, and I tell the story that I took those tests and came back in a high percentile and they made me take the doggone test over. And it's like, I'll be damned. How can you as adults treat children? You say that we're not good enough. You say that we're not smart enough, but when we are, then you still put your finger on the scale. That's, That's right. the issue people don't understand. And it wasn't just in Chapel Hill. It was in Charleston, South Carolina. And people just don't understand. And when you say that, People are like, nah, that's not true. It is true. It is true. That's true. And my brother, my father, before he um, went into computers, 
was going into psychology. So he had us tested. I don't know how much weight people give to these tests, but my brother, I do remember that my brother tested on a genius level, you know, um, when he took these tests. By the time he had graduated from Chapel Hill, they had him in some remedial courses. Mm-hmm. And um, that this is what they recommended for him. So we do a lot of disservice. And like I said, we leave a lot of brilliant talent on the ground. So for me, Odell, the thing that I um, do, first of all, is work with our children and tell them how brilliant they are and show them um, a lot of times, you know, there's there's this old saying, you ain't come from nothing and you ain't going to be nothing. And I don't think that that is helpful for our children. I right. tell them of the potential that they have inside. And also when working with the parents, because like you said, we have to work with the parents. For me, confidence is the first thing. Um, it's the most important thing, you know, in terms of children attempting to do the work that they need to do and to be in those spaces. So confidence is something that I try to work on and it's always rewarded. So um, we either have to, in my view, we either have to accept the fact that Black people and Latino people are just intellectually inferior and there is no hope for us, or we have to accept the fact that we're not being able to reach all of the children and bring them to their full educational potential. And that's something that we have to work out. I will share with you that um, I actually took my children out of the Chapel Hill Carborough City Schools because, um, and it was a heartbreak because that was the best time coming up in Chapel Hill. I love the town, I love the city, and I loved all my school friends. But my research and experience showed me that I did not want my children to think that they were anomaly if they were in um, academically gifted classes. I didn't want um, my children to be earmarked. So I took them next door to Durham Public Schools. And my son graduated valedictorian. My my daughter broke all kinds of records and both of them went to the North Carolina A&T for um, and, uh, full ride academic scholarships. And along the way, it's not just my children. My children are set in terms of like educational stuff. We have to reckon with this problem. We have to reckon with the way children are treated and earmarked for a future from um, systemic stuff, I, all, I, I don't doubt, there are only two um, horrible teachers that I had. Other than that, I don't doubt that my child, my teachers loved me or um, loved my children or wanted the best for them. They didn't have tools or the understanding of how these systemic things really can impact a child's future. And until we get with that and then commit ourselves to repair, that's my ministry. We have to commit ourselves to this repair and until we commit to doing that, we're gonna. It's gonna be another fifty years, and we're still gonna have the second largest achievement gap in the nation. So, um, well, I'm sorry that that happened to you. And well, as you said, it's a common problem. It happens so often to so many children. It did, and that's one of the things that drive me. Now, bridging the gap, Incorporated, is that a five hundred one c three nonprofit? Yes. Can you tell our audience? Just for the record, Bill don't Bill doesn't know this yet, but he's 100% behind it, that uh, we're going to make a donation to your nonprofit. But you could also, can you share, um, and I'll get with my church also. So you're going to get a donation from uh, Mount Zion Baptist Church in Greensboro, North Carolina. 
And you're going to get a donation from Bridging the Gap, not Bridging the Gap, excuse me, Common, so I'm still emotional, from Common Ground. And can you tell the audience how they want to make a financial donation? Because words are good, but words and money is better. Can you tell them how to make a donation to Bridging the Gap, please? And then we'll kick it back to Bill. Thank you so much. I mean, first of all, let me say I'm overwhelmed. And uh, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate. When I was a student at ANT, I did go to Mount Zion a couple of times. So thank you so much. And uh, Bill, even though you didn't agree to it, <laughs> you didn't know you were agreeing to it. And listen, <laughs> Odell's got me into more things that I, after I'm through, I'm going, what the heck just happened? <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate it. No, but no, there, no problem. Um, no problem. There is donation information on our website, and it's uh, Bridging the Gap with DMH Danita, for Danita Mason Hogan's uh, org. So thank you so much for, for doing. I'm really touched by that. No, it's our, well, our honor. Bill is on you, sir. Okay. We're, we're near the end here. And I, I know this could go on for another hour. I bet you those porches last more than an hour. Oh uh, yeah. We had to extend our time. Initially it was an hour and now it's two hours. So yeah. <laughs> there you go. Time's yeah. <laughs> yeah you time's just start three. at one hour. You're just getting warmed up. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, well, listen, it's, we've come to the point where we're going to ask each of you how you find common ground, and uh, I'm going to let whoever wants to go first go ahead and do that. I'll, I'll go first. Okay, Missy. Um, I think that it, it is what we've been talking about. How we find common ground is to be willing to, to, to share your heart, to be vulnerable, to learn um, and, and to really value what someone else is saying in their experience. And if you're willing to do that and you find the people, um, I think we can all find more common ground. So we've got to listen, first of all, and then be open to the information. Very good. Sandra? Go next. Um, Bill, I love you to say, I don't, you don't know where Odell's going to take you, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's all I know is it's going to be fun when we get there. It's so. going to oh, be boy. fun, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what Missy's saying is, is to be open to that. And then I also, um, as a white person, I tell my sons and my husband this particularly is, is if white people can just not be defensive, right? I have a wonderful mentor that'll say, if you get defensive, you get a zero. And so for all the kind of, you know, uptight white people that want A pluses, they really <laughs> have a hard time with that. But just to come with openness as white people not get defensive and then you don't know where it's going to go, but it will, it will be joyful when you're searching for common ground. Very good. Thank you. Danita? Well, I have to tell you about my porch sisters. Um, Sandra... And Missy are um, gifts from God. That is that is absolutely. And the way that we met and that our lives intersection is our common intersected is our common ground. I mean, um, Missy is one. Uh, she's she's a socialite in Chapel Hill, and Missy is actually one of the best organizers I have ever seen. Creating a space and opportunity for people to get together. Sandra is right spot on with state politics and strategies. 
And so for me, the common ground that we find is the way that we try to use the gifts that God has given us to make this world a better place. And I am just um, so honored to be with my porch sisters to laugh and and be silly with. And we didn't talk about how Missy makes these incredible um, little snack trays. She didn't just bring potato chips. Missy <laughs> brings out the china. She has like all these like real hors d'oeuvres. I mean, she could she could do a whole hosting show on her own. And she comes with this little agenda. I mean, we have so much fun and um, and magic. On, champagne on anniversaries, Odell, to your point. We, yeah, yeah. <laughs> champagne and, you know, and, and make these little wands, these little fairy wands and dance and just have a good time. And so that joy is also our common ground, the joy and the appreciation and love for Chapel Hill and all of the things that used to be and our hopes for the future. Um, these porch sisters are something else. And um, I think our common ground is the love that we have for our place and each other and um, and and doing what's right. Yeah, man, well said. You know, the, hearing this conversation from these three beautiful women uh, make me think about this um, quote that I saw that's going to be uh, um, my uh, quote for 2023. So I'm going to read it. Uh, Surround yourself with people that push you to do and be better. No drama, no negativity, just higher goals, higher motivation, good times, positive energy, no jealousy or hate, simply bringing out the absolute best in each other. And that's what the porch has done. Bring out the best in each of you. Thank you. And can I say thank you and thank Odell for creating a different type of porch. And um, I'm a, like I said uh, at the beginning, I'm a big fan of the show and the things that you try to create and bring people together is similar to what we do. And uh, we, we are all uh, very grateful for the work that y'all do. Well, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much to both of you. It's been a privilege. Yes, thank you. Guys so much. Find Bill and Odell online at thecommonground.show. This podcast is a production of BG Ad Group. Darren Sutherland, Executive Director. Jacob Sutherland, Director. Matt Golden, News Director. Chin Ray Zhang, Director Producer. And Jason Gentarola, Audio Producer. All rights reserved. This podcast is brought to you by Yes Weekly, the triad's largest circulated and best read weekly magazine. You can also find us online at yesweekly.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yes Weekly your trusted news leader for local arts, entertainment, music, food, and more for nearly 18 years. Whether you're a big, medium, or small business, managing and growing the bottom line is important. Focus CFO brings the experience and financial acumen of a Fortune 100 chief financial officer to your company at a fraction of the cost. PL help, internal reporting processes, or any business transitions or events, Focus CFO will help you and your team have a CFO in your company's back pocket. Focus CFO. Learn more at focuscfo.com.